0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Kate Andrews. Now, first of all, the big story of the weekend, Fraser, was Nadine Dorrie's resignation. She wrote an 1800-word letter. You wrote an article about this over the weekend. Uh, Tell us what you think of her resignation.
1: Well, of course, she resigned in inverted commas several months ago. She wanted to wait until Saturday to give a story for the Sundays. I also note she's got a new book coming out to coincide with the by-election. It seems to be some strange conspiracy theory that Boris Johnson was assassinated in the title of her book. Now, the thing is, Nadine Dorries is one of these people who makes Parliament's a more colourful place. I shared some of her criticisms about Rishi Sunak. The Tory party has got an embarrassing lack of vision right now. It's being led by somebody who lost a leadership contest and who is falsely trying to claim credit for falling inflation. I agree with her on all of those things. But there are three areas where I fundamentally disagree with her. One is to claim that a cabal of Sunakites or a cabal of anybody, somehow defenestrated Boris Johnson. We can all remember the circumstances in which his government impl- imploded. And they did so because he became the first Prime Minister in British history who couldn't find enough people to serve in his government. It was a mass protest by the Parliamentary Party, all of whom just couldn't take any of a disorder Anymore. So if Nadine Dorries wants to go after people, he should really go after the dozens and dozens and dozens of Tory MPs who either resigned or refused to serve. That's why he quit. Secondly, the idea of calling a, a by-election, I think, is just a monstrous act of, of vanity. I'm a bit old-fashioned here. I think the chance to serve constituents is just a huge honour, and you need to be able to pledge to them that you'll serve the time allowed. I, I just can't believe it when now and again you see politicians saying, sorry, I've been given a better job at Sellafield, I'm going to quit as an MP and take this better job. You know, pol- politics isn't like that. If you've got the, the right, if you have asked tens of thousands of people to send you to Parliament for the next parliamentary term, then whatever happens, you will serve that term. And in triggering this by-election... She is um, behaving as if they were somehow pawns to be deployed as part of a book launch campaign. And it's just, uh, I think any politician, Labour or Tory, who behaves in that way has got the idea of public service upside down. And then the third part of it was, of course, that we know she resigned because she wasn't given a place in the House of Lords. She didn't mention that in her letter. Her letter was trying to make it out a principle defense of democracy. Now, she says that MPs shouldn't be um, kicking out elected leaders. If that's the case, then why did she move against David Cameron? And she move against Liz Truss? Again, it's hypocritical nonsense from her. But to actually cause a by-election because you felt you were so entitled to a place in the House of Lords. It is an outrage that you are not ennobled. To me, has her behaving exactly like the caricature of the entitled Tory squire whom she affects to despise. So here we have got, bizarrely, somebody who came to Parliament as a former nurse in the blue-collar Tory and who leaves it with a level of haughtiness, of entitlement, of a warped view of public service that you would never find in the most stuck-up Tory grandee.
0: Okay, I just wonder perhaps if... Dean Doris in her letter has inadvertently stumbled on something which is that she lists all the kind of broken promises you know things she talks about the BBC license reform sort of killed social reform killed social care reform taxes going up things like corporation tax I mean but has she just sort of put her finger on the issue here which is that the sort of ideological incoherence facing the Conservatives and they don't know which way to turn even if she blames it on Sunak the same story was true of Boris Johnson as well right.
2: Well, I think that's exactly it, and and that's what she misses out. I think you're right, James, to point to the fact that she has a long list there of areas where the Tories just have not delivered, despite the fact that they've had over a decade to do so, areas that because they were politically difficult, or indeed because of external forces like a pandemic and the rest of it. They just simply haven't been able to achieve. What she doesn't really pay lip service to is her role in that and those who she continues to support and and their role in that. As you say, corporation tax was going up under Boris Johnson. He gave the green light to his then chancellor, Rishi Sunak to do that. I mean, so many of the issues that, that she talks about could go back to 2010. But, you know, let's remember David Cameron and George Osborne did significantly cut the deficit. You know, I think a lot of what she talks about really goes back to the Theresa May and Philip Hammond era and this idea that they weren't going to be physically disciplined anymore certainly not in the way that Cameron and Osborne had a vision for it and then you have Boris Johnson who just wanted to spend and then had a license because of COVID to spend you know she backed him she backed Liz Truss these are people who just wanted to spend and spend and spend so when she talks about the economy when she talks about you know the 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 rather dismal situation we're in when it comes to pro-growth policies I don't think she's being reflective enough of, of her own actions in that.
1: What's more significant, I think, is what she's she's trying to get going here, which is a Tory constituency to think everything was going fine under Boris Johnson until he was robbed by a cabal of elite deep state. You can see sort of Trumpian overtones. It's almost as if she's trying to create the own sort of 6th of January kind of stab in the back narrative here. You'll get taken more seriously now saying that because under Boris Johnson, Tories were 10 points behind and they were worried about that. And Rishi Sunak was thinking and telling others, look, we're 10 points behind because Boris has become a lightning rod. Remove him and things will get better. And in fact, they're 20 points behind now. So being 10 points behind into Boris seems like a pretty good solution. So you can, and of course, the... the, backle of a Conservative leadership over the last um, 12 to 14 months means that the Tory party is now led by somebody who lost a leadership contest. Now that is undemocratic and um, an embarrassing situation. So I think what we can see now is, and I think, by the way, she'll be the first of this, rather than a post-mortem, we're getting a pre-mortem, we're getting why the Conservatives are about to lose. I think Nadine Doris is giving us her book, where her stab in the back narrative, Assassination of that's her idea. I think Liz Truss will be next with her kind of pre-mortem. She's got a book coming out, I think, uh, in the spring of next year. Uh, again, not times to help the Conservatives' leadership chances. I think we're now seeing so many Tories who've given up the ghost that they almost have lost thought of that their general behaviour, the way this will weaken them collectively, they, if they thought there was an even 40 to 50% chance of winning the next election, I think they'd be more disciplined than they've been. So we can start to see now the reckoning, the why did we lose question being asked by Tories a year before that election has taken place.
2: The irony, of course, being that so many of the things that the government's having to manage now, including higher interest rates, uh, you know, tackling inflation, all the rest of it, comes from... A really big decision made under the Boris Johnson administration, which was to do one of the longest lockdowns in Europe. And that decision we're going to be living with in virtually every area of public policy for decades to come.
1: We've got Theresa May's memoirs coming out on Wednesday, by the way. I'm reviewing them for The Telegraph.
2: Who became very sceptical of the government's draconian attitude towards lockdown.
1: Well, we'll see. I mean, there's... Uh, w- Just
2: at the time she did, it'll be interesting to see how that's reflected in the book.
1: Yeah, and there's um, so many things I'm looking forward to reading in that book because I did see her as quite a liberal authoritarian figure. And and so far as, as John Burko has emerged in the clips we've seen so far as the kind of main villain of her book, but you know she was present at the destruction of what was the uh, the great Tory promise, which um, now I think the latest betting markets show they've got a ten percent chance of winning the next election. Right now,
0: that feels a bit generous. Hmm. And in terms of today's headlines, I mean, I think we call R.I. Uh, was caught by the splash of the Times in which it says that migrants arriving illegally in Britain may be fitted with GPS tax to prevent them absconding under Home Office plans to deal with a lack of detention spaces. So Brabham was asked about this on her morning media round, didn't deny that this has been considered. Of course, whether it actually happened is another question. Fraser, what's your thoughts on this as a scheme? I think what we can hear now
1: are the growing cries of desperation from the Home Office on Number 10. Rishi Sunak promised to stop the boats. Very um, clear message. The Spectator Data Hub all the time tracks the cumulative rise in small boat arrivals. It's pretty much as bad as it was last year. They haven't been able to do anything. I think the Rwanda plan had great promise, and indeed I think it's the only thing that could properly tackle the people smuggling industry. But if that has been stopped by the courts, there are no other tools. So if we're left thinking of other various things, I was trying to put them onto that floating boat
0: hostel. which The baby Stockholm, which sounds like a sort of 70s adult film star. Um, well,
1: I'm not, you might have slightly different viewing taste to me, yes, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly—I uh, I think of it as being an admirable place for Orkney oil rig workers to spend their time <laughs> in altogether more fruitful pursuits. But, but, but nonetheless, you know that that got infestation, and they had to quick. So we're seeing this cycle now, I think, of sooner thinking, "Oh dear, I've promised to." Not just to stop the boats, which he hasn't, but uh, there was a clip emerged recently of him saying how we'll never be able to control immigration without Brexit. Now Brexit has come, but immigration is rising at a level unprecedented in the history of this country. So I think he's getting a little bit concerned. Um, obviously nobody's going to go around fitting tags or shackles onto Um, anybody coming from small boats but it is, however, this highlights actually one of the main problems, that those who do arrive here have got little realistic chance of deportation and that's why they arrive, because the people smugglers can plausibly say to them that once we get you ashore, then the system is so inefficient in Britain that you can disappear into the black market and join the million strong people, probably more in this country who are undocumented and who can live here below the radar
0: Hey, what do you make of this plan for tagging, perhaps?
2: I agree with Fraser. It just reeks of desperation. The ultimate problem here is that the asylum backlog is now at 175,000. If you go back to 2010, it was below 10,000. And rather than tackle the actual asylum system and its process, the government is trying to come up with every other way to deal with this issue, and it's simply not going to be successful. And you just see this Tory government... Compromising principle after principle to deal with something that they know is an election issue. I mean, partially because they decided to make it one. That was a voluntary choice UNAC made at the start of the year. But one that we also know does weigh on voters' minds, albeit less so since Brexit. What's
1: the principle of compromising on here?
2: Well, on this one, the concept around identity cards and the rest of it. If you oppose the idea of identity cards, you do not start to compromise that because somebody is a migrant you don't start tagging people I mean of course the best way to keep track of asylum seekers if we really want to make sure that everybody stayed within the system and stayed above ground would be to allow these people to work while they're waiting for their application because then we would have a lot more information than we would have on them now and even with some kind of GPS tracker but the moment that you start compromising rights to, to privacy and identity for anybody when it comes to something like ID cards or GPS cards you know I just think you've thrown all your principles out the window and that's a real shame and and, you know, I think post-COVID, there's this increasing authoritarian nature amongst our politicians, amongst the public in general. And it's the kind of thing we really have to fight.
0: I think I should also point out that as the Times itself notes that you know, officials have warned that there's not concerns there and not enough tags even to go on all the migrants here. So I think perhaps it could be another example of a policy being briefed, but with actually the fundamentals to back it up.
2: Mm, indeed. Uh, I, I mean, who knows if they could actually execute it. And with the Rwanda plan, we've seen that the execution has been rather abysmal. And I think we compare that, right, to the weighty promises that have been made around these things. But but as they fail in the execution, they're reaching for more policies that I just think are really the antithesis of what a Tory government should stand for, and what a lot of these politicians have criticized in the past.
1: Do you think, Kate, we're sounding like Labour voters here just despairing of the Tories thinking of the worst things ever?
2: No, I don't. Because I think, well, first of all, I haven't, Me, you know, maybe I haven't been listening properly. I haven't really heard any Labour MPs properly criticize a lot of these immigration plans that the Tories have put forward. They say, oh, we do things differently. They do things better. But one of my biggest fears going into the next election is that a lot of it's going to be run on an anti-migrant platform and Labour are going to play that game and actually have increasingly few number of voices i think making that classically small l liberal argument that when you start compromising certain principles about autonomy for a certain group of people usually more vulnerable like migrants like asylum seekers refugees you make everybody vulnerable to those kinds of arguments. Uh, and unfortunately, that's what I fear we're going to see from the Tories and from Labour. I don't think this is a left-wing argument. A case I've been making on Coffee House this year, as frequently as I can, is that to understand why an individual might be motivated to have a better life in Britain is a fundamentally conservative value. We need a system that you know allows for us to know who's coming in and out of the country. We need an asylum system and an immigration system that is not in any way connected to small dangerous boats. But the ideas that they're coming up with, in my opinion, are fundamentally unconservative.
1: Which comes down to Nindeen Doris's complaint that there's no real vision.
2: Mm, sure, but she comes at it from that other perspective, doesn't she? I mean, I haven't heard her criticizing the government's immigration policies because they're not liberal enough. So, you know, I, th- I think again, Fraser, you're totally right to point out there's a lot of criticism at the Tory of the Tory party at the moment. Is there enough criticism of Labour, which, if we do believe the polls, or even somewhat believe the polls, I think there needs to be a lot more of, because these could be the people governing us come the next year.
1: Yeah, okay, but what I'm thinking is, when I look back at the last, say, 10, 15 things that I've written, or if you've written, both of us have basically been writing in despairing pieces about the various things that the Conservatives are doing wrong.
2: But... I think there are a few reasons for that. I mean, one is, I think, sort of a a sadness that in 13 years, you know, you can point to real conservative achievements, say, around education, but there's so many areas where you should have been able to and can't. So I think some people are, are almost in a mourning period about that. You know, the other point is 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 that I, I think if we, if we look at the COVID years and the genuine debate that we know were taking place. We have pretty good sense that Rishi Sunak at one point wanted to challenge the triple lock on pensions. We have a pretty good sense that they really wanted to tackle public spending. There are reasons to think things could still turn around and that we could start getting things back on track. So, you know, I I think this is still a conversation we should have, but, but I guess my point, Fraser, is there's a difference between attacking the Tories and then from what perspective you're doing that. And I think, you know, the spectator tends to take on that that more classically liberal critique. Um, and that is, that is not the loudest voice in the public debate at the moment, which is you know why I say Nadine Doris may have almost accidentally stumbled upon, I think, a good conclusion. But the way she got there is not one that I necessarily agree with.
0: Food for thought there from Nadine Doris, perhaps. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.